Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast from the First Christian Church in Great Bend, Kansas. We are a church with a mission of inspiring ordinary people to live extraordinary lives for Christ. It really doesn't matter who you are, what you have done, or how you choose to worship. You belong here. We pray that this week's sermon blesses you and that you feel God's presence through it today. Sermon series simply called Grace. And what I hope to accomplish over the next three weeks is not only give you a picture of God's amazing grace, the grace that he has given to us through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, but also to help you begin to see that that God's grace is so big and beautiful that it's actually something we get to experience every single moment of every single day in and through all things, if you have eyes to see. So to get into this, the word that gets translated as grace is the Greek word charis. And yes, that's why we named our daughter Charis. She is our grace. And for me, the best way to define this term is to basically say that that grace defined is unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Or it's the experience we've all had before when someone does something that benefits us, that's good for us, that we didn't earn nor did we deserve. Or for example, when my children come up to me with their hands out asking for money and I give it to them, no questions asked, that is a form of grace. They didn't earn that. I just handed it out. In another sense, grace is what my wife continues to do for me, not by giving me what I deserve when I do something to hurt her, right? Married people, you guys know what I'm talking about, but by offering me forgiveness and love Instead, so again, in my humble opinion, grace is best defined as unmerited favor. Or maybe to keep digging a little bit, grace is undeserved kindness. It's unearned acceptance and compassion and even unjustified love and forgiveness. But now that you're starting to understand what grace is in a kind of general big picture kind of way, what I want to do this morning to set the foundation for the rest of the series is to walk you through the grace or the unmerited favor that God has offered to every single one of us in Christ. But instead of doing that in a technical kind of way, what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk you through the first part of my favorite parable, the parable of the prodigal son. Because for me, this parable, more than anywhere else in the Bible, not only brings to light how amazing God's grace is, but it shows us how it actually works. The parable begins. There was a young man who had two sons. Excuse me. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, the first thing you need to understand about what the younger son is doing here is just how ridiculous it is. In that we find the younger, not the older son, coming to his father to ask him for his part of the inheritance while his father is still alive. Or to get at what's going on here, parents, I want you to imagine your youngest child coming up to you about the age of 18 and asking you before you're even close to being dead to go ahead and give the inheritance that they will receive when you die. Because that's basically what's going on here. But what makes this request even more ridiculous in the ancient context is the way that inheritance worked back then is after the father died, the oldest son, not the youngest son, would end up getting anywhere from 80 to 90% of the inheritance with the younger son just getting what was left 
over. And the reason it worked this way is not necessarily because the oldest son was the favorite or he was more responsible. No, it's because the oldest son was expected to take the wealth and not use it on himself and his immediate family, but to keep the entire family system going. Or or this son was expected to step into the leadership role that his father had, caring for everyone in the household, right? They didn't have nuclear families. They had big extended families that all lived in the same house, which included aunts and uncles and cousins and everyone else who was in the household, including slaves. And so to do that, the older son would receive the inheritance to keep the family going. So of course, Given the absurdity of this request, how you would expect this father to respond is not only by saying no, but heck no, right? Because of what it could do to the family. And yet, as you guys know, that's not what happens. So he divided his property between them. He divided his property between them. Yeah, this father, instead of saying no, actually not only says yes, but he then goes on to give his son half of all he owns. Or again, to get how bad this is for the entire family, just imagine that when your youngest comes up to you and asks for your inheritance, you actually give it to them at the age of 18. And in turn, what that would mean for your entire family system. And now, of course, that this younger son has just come into some money, what do you think he's going to do? What do you think an 18-year-old is going to do with a whole lot of money and not a whole lot of life experience, right? Yeah. He's going to do what you think he's going to do. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Squandered his wealth in wild living. The picture that always comes to my mind when I think about what the younger son is doing here is I picture some kid packing up all of his stuff and moving to somewhere like Las Vegas, right? Where for a couple of months, he's living like a king, doing everything that he's always wanted to do and was never allowed to do, drugs, drinking, sex, party all night, sleep all day, you name it, he did it, not taking into account that there was going to come a point when he would run out of money because he's 18 years old, which is exactly what happened. And then some, after he had spent everything, There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Or not only did he run out of money, but he ran out of money during a severe famine. And why that matters is because in the ancient context, famines were the most dangerous kind of natural disasters where people who did not have any money or wealth, which is where this kid is, were usually the first to die. Which means this poor kid has gone from living like a king, doing whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it, to being absolutely desperate and broke, willing to do anything to survive in a matter of days. So in his desperation, he does this. He went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And what's so interesting about what's going on here is that as a Jew, this boy was forbidden to work for any kind of Gentile, someone who was not a Jew, and yet he's working for a Gentile. And even more than that, Jews were not supposed to touch pigs because pigs were considered to be unclean animals. And yet, because it was a life or death situation, we find him not only working on a pig farm for a Gentile, but that things have gotten so bad, he longs to eat the pig slop. Yeah, this kid has gotten so low that he is jealous of the unclean pigs because they are eating better than he is. That's how low he is. 
So what I imagine is going on in this boy's mind after he spends some time doing all this hard work of feeding pigs and what that means um, is he begins to try to figure out a way to get out of this mess, that, this hole that he has put himself in. So, of course, he doesn't have to remain being a pig farmer for the rest of his life. And it seems as he's working through all of that, he finally gets that the only chance he has not to be trapped in this place is to try to go home. So when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will send out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But what you need to understand about this boy deciding to return home is that in most cases, when a son does something as foolish as this boy did, what he can expect is he's been cut off from his family forever. Or or in the ancient world, it was not uncommon that if a son shamed a father, which clearly he has done here, that he wouldn't even be considered a son anymore. Which is exactly why the, the logic of the son here is not about returning home to be welcomed back as a son. No, he knows that's impossible. No, all this boy is looking for is that his father would at least have some pity on him. And take him back as a slave. That's his only hope. And yet, this is the good part of the story. And yet, as the story turns its view back to the father, what we find is not an angry, bitter father who has written off his son and just moved on like he was supposed to. But a father who seems to be standing out on a hill, hoping and waiting for his wandering boy to return home. And then this happens. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Now, what makes this father's response so interesting in the ancient context is not only is he waiting and watching for this boy who should be dead to him for all that he has done, but when he finally sees him, it's like he comes unglued. And that he runs to him, which doesn't sound like that big a deal to you and I today. But in the ancient Jewish context, you need to know that running was something that they weren't supposed to do. In fact, it was forbidden unless there was an emergency. And the reason for that is men at that time wore calf link, tight fitting moo-moos. You guys know what I'm talking about with a moo-moo, right? Really tight and they wore it clear down to here. So if you are in the ancient world and you need to run as a man, what do you have to do to run? What happens when you pull it up too far? Yeah, so you guys get what's going on here. This guy came unglued to run out, which, by the way, is uh, clearly why it was forbidden. Nobody wants to see uh, any of that. But then what happens? But then (laughs) you guys thought Jesus was boring. He's not. If you know how to read this stuff, there's all sorts of awesome stuff uh, that was going on. But not only does his father run to his boy, but it also says he begins to embrace and kiss him and show compassion. And why that's not supposed to happen is because in the ancient world, hugging and kissing your children as a man was only something that was supposed to happen, or only something that women were supposed to do. And yet here, he is acting like a woman. (gasps) But that's exactly how he responds. Then it seems as they're standing out there on the hill, that's when the boy takes this as an opportunity to apologize, to see if he can at least become a slave. He didn't want to go back to the pig farm. So he begins. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And yet, before the boy is even able to get through his entire apology, the father cuts him off and does this. 
Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And what a ring and sandals signify in the ancient context is this father is not just going to accept him back as one of his slaves. No, this father, without any kind of reservation or hesitation, simply welcomes his boy home. So much so that he throws him this lavish party to honor and celebrate him being home and safe. It says, bring a fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Come on now, right? But, but, before you get caught up in all the warm and fuzziness that is going on here, which is absolutely amazing, to get how strange this is. Just imagine after your child took half of your wealth and then took that wealth and went out and squandered it on all things that they're not supposed to do. And then after they run out of money, decided to return home because they have no other place to go. How do you think you would respond to that situation? Yeah, my bet is your response is not going to be welcoming them back with open arms, but that if you're willing to take them back at all, there's going to be consequences. There's going to be stipulations because let's be honest, that'd be the right thing to do so our kids would learn what they need to learn. And yet in this story, which is the point, we find this father not doing what he's supposed to do, but simply welcoming this boy back. No questions asked. Which means, what's going on here is this father has offered his son grace. That's the unmerited favor I'm talking about. He didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. In fact, what he deserves is punishment and be kicked out of the family. But the father gives it to him anyway. Now, for me, what makes this story so powerful? So when you think about it, this is our story. Or every single one of us, at one time or another, have taken the gifts and the talents that God has given to us, right? And used it, not on the kingdom and God's family, but we've used it on ourselves. We went out and did what we wanted to do, which leads to all sorts of dark places and questionable choices. Or how many of you know exactly what I'm talking about? You've been a prodigal son. Anybody? For the rest of you, you're lying. We've all done it. Which means the way God should be responding is he probably shouldn't take us back. And if he does decide to take us back, he probably needs to punish us to give us what we deserve. And yet what this parable shows to us, what it reveals to us about just how amazing our God is, is that any time we choose to walk away, any time we get caught up in a life of sin, our God is the kind of God who is not going to do what is just and right when it comes to what we deserve. But is the kind of God that is standing out there on that hill, waiting and watching. So that when we do decide to come home, he can shower us in all of that unbelievable, amazing grace. And then to take this a step further, in a sense... What's going on through the cross is Jesus gave his life for the sins of the world. Is that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like for God to be standing on that hill with his arms wide open, waiting anxiously for all of us to come home. 
And again, also, he can give us not what we've earned or what we've deserved, but that unmerited favor or grace where we're not only completely and totally forgiven and saved, but where we actually get to live into a deep and abiding relationship with the creator of the universe for the rest of our lives and beyond. For that, my friends, is what God's grace looks like. And all you have to do to receive it, come home. All you have to do to receive it is come home. Let us pray. Father, your grace doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't make any sense when we give it a moment of thought. And yet, because of who you are, you choose to forgive us. You, if we decide to come home, you choose to celebrate us. You choose to throw us a party because what you want most is a deep and abiding relationship with each and every one of us. So today, oh Lord, help this idea of grace that we all have in our heads go from our head to our heart so we can experience you, your grace, your love, your forgiveness, your life by just coming back home. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon, and we hope you are able to join us next week. To learn more about FCC Great Bend, visit us online at firstchristianchurchgb.com. Again, that's firstchristianchurchgb.com. God bless and have a great week.